My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is creator and he is alive. My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is creator and he is alive. He made all the heavens and earth, yes it's true, he showed all his glory so there's no excuse. So worship, adore him, and baptize his name. So chaos he enters, his greatness proclaim. My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is alive. The Christ is alive, the Christ is alive, the Christ is our Savior, and he is alive. The Christ is alive. The Christ is alive, the Christ is our Savior, and He is alive. He rose from the bondage and gloom of the grave, exalted on high for the life that He gave. So glory and honor and praise is His name. So chaos of kingdoms His sonship proclaim. The Christ is alive, the Christ is alive. The Christ is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is the Bible and it is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is the Bible and it is alive. The Spirit inspired the great men of God who penned all the Sees while here on this song, it sharpens and swords and it bears the same. Since power is failing, its worth we proclaim. God's word is alive, God's word is alive, God's word is alive. We often talk about what Jesus did. Or, you know, maybe what he will do in the future. And, you know, there for a while there was popular that the bracelet that would say WWJD and what would Jesus do. So, you know, we, we focused on the things that Jesus would do so often. But what I want us to do is I want us to think about and to take a look at what Jesus will not do. Because sometimes the things that we don't do are just as important as the things that we do. We're going to be looking at Jesus' temptation from Luke chapter 4, and we're going to see, uh, you know, we oftentimes talk about this as his Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and, and we're going to see uh, what he would not do, what he was uh, not willing to do. Um, and actually, it's going to be from verses 1 through 13 of Luke uh, 4, and surprisingly enough, we're going to start with verse 13, because although it ends it, and we kind of know where it's going, you probably know the story pretty well, I want us to take a look at each one of these temptations and see how Jesus responded to it. And we're going to learn how Jesus endured each one of the temptations. And all of his ways can be our ways as well. In fact, I would say all of Jesus' ways should be our ways as well. So let's start in verse 13 together. Verse 13 of Luke 4, it actually says, When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him that is Jesus, until an opportune time. Now, there's so many important things about this, this phrase about uh, that he left him until an opportune time, you know, and there's a lot to keep in mind about this. 
one of the things that, of course, we can see in this, you know, we, we sort of know how the rest of the story is going to progress. And what we see in this story about Jesus is that opportune time is going to come up uh, most likely several different times in Jesus' ministry, but it's going to ultimately lead to that uh, time on the cross. And that's what it's it's going to be leading to. And that's when all of this these trials and, and temptations and the testing is going to be taking place uh, all through Jesus' ministry, but that's where it's going to be leading. So we know that, and Luke is maybe kind of hinting at that a little bit, even very early on. But we see so many things about this, and we definitely see that Jesus is, of course, able to um, overcome this temptation. He's able to overcome uh, this trial. Uh, let's take a look at some of the, the big picture ideas, though, in this passage, because I think there's so much that we can learn about Jesus that Luke just kind of weaves within his story. And as he tells this story, he's already kind of woven a few things together in it. So let's pick up a few of those things. So now let's go to the very beginning of the story, like what we normally do. Verses 1 and 2 of Luke 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Okay, so now this passage, uh, what we actually see and what we can pick up on in some of these big picture things is uh, where this takes place in in uh, Luke's gospel is pretty important because uh, Luke has already talked about in the last chapter, in Luke 3, verses 21 and 22, we saw that Jesus himself was baptized. Well, he was baptized there, so he went through the water, he had that encounter, and then he goes out into the wilderness in this passage that we're looking up right here. Now, this kind of uh, imitates the same type of thing or, or sort of uh, redoes the same type of story that we've seen is the big picture story of the nation of Israel. Do you remember they had their own kind of baptism in the sense of the Red Sea crossing whenever they came out of the land of Egypt? Then as they come out of the land of Egypt, do you remember what they encountered? It was a wilderness. It was a time of testing, a time of temptation in the wilderness. And this kind of big picture thought about who Jesus is and, and how this story is portrayed to us, it's teaching us and setting us up for, uh, for something to pay attention to. And that is that Jesus is the new Israel. You know, yes, he's only one person, but he embodies this whole new nation and what the nation is supposed to be and what we as humans are supposed to be. Jesus is the new Israel. He is starting things new. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And we also see, of course, kind of a big picture thought as, as well, is that Jesus is a universal representative of all of humans. That's why we see phrases like son of man or, you know, son of Adam, even like we just saw in Luke chapter three, that the genealogy. So right after Jesus is baptized, we see, oh, well, you know, he, he came and he can trace his lineage all the way back to Adam. So he's the son of uh, Adam, son of, of man, and he's also the son of God. We see these phrases a few different times. If you want to kind of look them up or maybe write them down, you can see them in uh, Luke chapter three, verse 22. Also, Luke chapter 3, verse 37, we see it in uh, this passage that we're going to be taking a look at here in Luke 4, verse 3, and also in verse 9. We see these different phrases, the different ideas coming up, showing us that Jesus is going to be this universal representative. So now, let's see, as we've kind of laid this foundation, what are the things that Jesus is not willing to do? Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 
The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So in this passage, one of the things that we see that is so powerful and so important that we need to understand is this uh, thing that Jesus is not willing to do is related to life itself. And Jesus uh, will not turn his back on God, on our Heavenly Father, for his own survival. You know, that's what the devil is, is tempting him here. The devil is, is tempting him with this idea of, about his own survival. And, you know, after all, how important is it for Jesus to survive? I mean, of course, it's, it's entirely important to the whole plan of God. But yet, this was not the way that Jesus was supposed to survive. Um, the way that Jesus was supposed to survive was by full obedience to God, his heavenly Father. So we see this first thing um, that uh, that Jesus will not do is, you know, he's, uh, um, he, he's not going to turn his back on God even for the sake of his own life. Now, Jesus responds here in verse 4. Uh, it was to quote scripture. After all, isn't that the same way that we can uh, respond uh, as well? The only sword that Jesus ever had was the word of God. That's what the Apostle Paul will go on later uh, to speak about. And Jesus' response was to quote scripture. Every single temptation that we're going to see, that is how he overcomes it, is by quoting scripture. He turned to a different passage in scripture. Another little fun fact about uh, what's recorded here in Luke's gospel is that every single passage that Jesus quotes from, it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there's a lot of significance to that if you want to kind of think about it in the big picture way, because the book of Deuteronomy is even called by its name kind of the second giving of the law. And it was kind of a, uh, I guess if you want to look at it, it was a motivational um, speech right before they enter into the promised land, going over the law, making sure that they recognize what they're supposed to do, what's expected of them, and then they are to continue on. And the passages that Jesus quotes, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 13, then 6, 13, and then 6, 16. And each time that he quotes from Deuteronomy, he is quoting from a place where Israel itself was not doing good, it, where really pretty much they had failed the test. But he quotes those passages because that's what was important right there. Where Israel failed, Jesus was going to and has already now succeeded. So the first thing that, that uh, he is not going to do is Jesus is not going to turn his back on his heavenly father for his own survival, for his own life. So we see life. Now let's move on to lands. That's the next thing that the, that the devil is going to bring before Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what is another thing that Jesus will not do? Jesus will not worship the devil for world power or world authority, you know, however you kind of want to look at what this, this temptation is really getting at. It's kind of all these things wrapped up into one. But in verse 5, we see that what the devil is doing is he's showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Those were not really Jesus' kingdom. 
Jesus, time and time again, what he said was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's like this or like that. And he, and he shows us as humans how we don't need to be focused so much on the kingdoms of the world, but rather the kingdom of God and what God is all about and what it means to be a part of that kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But the devil was trying to get him to focus on the kingdoms of the world, which after all, let's for a moment, just kind of dive into this temptation and, and recognize this test that is being uh, uh, overcome right here. Now, for a moment, let's think about if Jesus were to have given in to this and if he were to be in control of all the kingdoms of the world. The world would be a pretty good place to live, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, yes, it kind of seems at first that the, the greatest thing to happen would be for Jesus to be in full control of all the kingdoms of the world. However, we need to take a step back from that. And, and even as you might have been listening to me and thinking, oh, yeah, that does sound great. I don't know why he didn't just, you know, do that some way. Let's take a step back from that. And let's recognize Jesus is already the king of kings. He, he already has accomplished these things. He already had them even before this passage. You know, he gave up all of his power and, and his glory whenever he came to earth and became a human being. And whenever he did that, he knew that it was only right to worship the Lord your God and to serve him only. That's why he quotes that passage right here. And we see that the devil, he talks as if he has so much power and so much authority. And, you know, maybe he maybe he does. Maybe he would have been willing to, to follow through with this. But you know what? Maybe he wouldn't have been willing to. And sometimes that's what we need to understand about the way that the devil might come with temptations for us. Is because some of the things the devil might say... They might be true, they might not be true, but regardless of whether or not they are true or if they're partially true, what we need to be focusing on is the same things that Jesus focused on, and that is the word of God, and that is worshiping the Lord your God and serving him only. So we've, we've looked at life, we've looked at lands, we saw how Jesus, he was not willing to forsake God for his own survival, he was not willing to uh, worship the devil for his own power, being able to get power in things. Now, the third thing is, I'm going to call it leverage, because that's what the devil is trying to tempt him to do, is to leverage God, kind of force God's hand, but Jesus would have none of it. In Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So now here, what Jesus will not do is Jesus will not force God's hand in order to save him. You know, because that, that's what this temptation is really about. The devil wanted Jesus to put himself in, in harm's way just to kind of see, well, will God actually save him or will God not? And when you think about those outcomes, it's kind of a crazy type of idea uh, because, you know, whether or not God would save uh, Jesus if he threw himself down, uh, each one of those would, would have created a, a weird kind of uh, form of reality. And Jesus would have none of that. He was not going to use God as some type of leveraging device and try to say, oh, well, you know, God, if you just, if you'll do this thing, I'll just do this. You know, he wasn't going to do any of those things. He was not trying to manipulate God in any way. What about us in our own lives? 
Have we ever been tempted to manipulate or try to manipulate God? We have seen it throughout history. Time and time again, uh, people have come and they've tried to uh, act as if they are on God's side or act as if God is on their side and to do things in the name of God that are not things of God. That's what the devil was tempting Jesus to do right here. Jesus will not do this. He will not give this into this temptation. Jesus responded with the scripture, do not put the Lord your God to the test. From this passage though, we actually see something. Part of the devil's argument is important because part of what the devil says, you know, at first he says, throw yourself down from here. And you're thinking, well, what good is that? What does that even have anything to do with? But then in the next couple of verses, in verses 10 and 11, he is actually quoting scripture right there. And he's quoting it accurately. You know, what he says is true, and that is actually found in the Bible. It's found in Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. So this teaches us that the devil can and does quote scripture. However, he does not apply it correctly. Just because somebody might use scripture to try to prove some point does not make their point valid. It doesn't even mean that God is, you know, on their side. They might be misapplying scripture to try to twist it. And, you know, in a way the devil was already doing kind of the same type of thing that he was wanting Jesus to do. Jesus would have none of that, though. However, one thing that I find a little fascinating about this is what Satan, what the devil, chooses to quote. It's Psalm 91. Now, you know, to us, you know, we, we read that and we might think, well, that's a, that's a very comforting uh, psalm. And, and it really is. And I want us to take a look at it just in the next uh, slide for a moment. Um, but it, it is a comforting uh, thought whenever you look at it. And whenever you see the, the, the thing that is being talked about there in that psalm. But another interesting thing about uh, this psalm that he quotes is that this psalm was actually known. And it was used during the time of Jesus uh, to comfort people, to strengthen people, and also kind of to protect them uh, against um, uh, evil spirits. Uh, we, we actually found Psalm 91, um, you know, not us specifically, but, you know, we as, as humans have found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we have found Psalm 91 uh, to be among some other texts that deal with kind of demons and, and sort of um, turning away from them and, and kind of being able to strengthen us and, and help us uh, during those times. And Psalm 91 is the very psalm uh, that the devil is, is quoting. You know, perhaps some people, you know, some uh, well-meaning people have, um, whenever they've been faced with a temptation from the devil, perhaps they've quoted that psalm to him. So maybe that's why he knows it so well. Regardless of how he knows it, he knows scripture and he's trying to use scripture to twist it and to get Jesus to do what he wants him to do. However, the devil conveniently does not mention the very next verse. <laughs> Let's take a look at Psalm 91 and I just want to share with you a few verses from that psalm. For starters, that psalm, uh, it, it begins, Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, it says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So that is who this psalm is, is talking about right here. So would this psalm most certainly be talking about Jesus? Yes. 
but it's talking about more than just that specific situation. We're not supposed to be using this passage or any others to twist God's hand, to try to manipulate him, to do whatever we want him to do and to perform whenever we want him to perform. The devil quotes verses 11 and 12, which say, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. However, look at the very next verse. I find this fascinating. Verse 13. He says, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. You know, some of the language that is being used right here is about trampling on the serpent. So the devil just conveniently doesn't mention that part of the psalm. It's not, I don't think, because he forgot it. It's because obviously that part of the psalm would, would show that, well, Jesus can actually lean upon the Most High in order to have this strength to, well, trample on the serpent. The serpent, the devil. He, he knows these things. He knows that he doesn't really stand a chance against Jesus, but he still tried. And with us, he might try similar types of things to get us to turn against our own Heavenly Father. And even after these temptations are completed, once again, we're going to end with the same verse that we sort of started with, that uh, Luke 4.13. In Luke 4.13, after the temptations are complete, we read, When the devil had finished all, his, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The war here is not over. But there is a victory here. There is a victory that's found in Jesus' encounter, this testing, this tempting that happens in the wilderness. Jesus had to face the devil again. In the future, you know, after this passage, this is the beginning of his ministry. Without a doubt, uh, Jesus was going to face um, Satan. He was going to face the devil many times throughout his ministry. And this is also a lesson for us, too. We know that that opportune time is going to lead Jesus to the cross. The devil was most certainly present in all of those those features. In fact, sometimes the Gospels even tell us that uh, that Satan entered in to Judas, and that led to all this betrayal that happened against Jesus. But we see that that's where it's going to be leading. But that is still not the end of the story. We see that Jesus always overcame. He was setting it up, teaching us how to be human, how to be the type of human that God wants us to be. And that is because Jesus is the new Israel. He is the Messiah. He is the representative of all humans, teaching us how to endure in hard times. The way that Jesus endured was by focusing on the Word of God. In order for us to focus on God's Word, we have to first know it. We have to learn it. We have to spend time with it, making sure that we don't misapply it as the devil did, but apply it correctly like what Jesus did. Let's follow in Jesus. Let's learn from him, acing the test right here. And let's do the same type of thing and endure by the strength of God, by the word of God. Come without money, come without price. Jesus has made the great sacrifice. Gladly he suffered our Calvary. He the great call, salvation is free. Here's his call so tenderly. Incline thine ear and come unto me. Here's his call so tenderly. Incline thine ear and come. Seek the Lord while he 
Yeah. 